Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Howard Stutz and I bring you Flashback Part 2, the second installment of our three-part series on the history of the gaming industry in Nevada. After that, Joey and reporter Tabitha Mueller talk with 16-year-old Samantha Glover, a student in Reno who helped pass a bill that will bring free menstrual products to school bathrooms. At the end of the show, we have a DC debrief, where Washington, D.C. reporter Humberto Sanchez and I discuss efforts to pass an infrastructure bill and more. All right, and so we are back for the second part of our of our history of, of gaming in Nevada with our new reporter, Howard Stutz. Howard, how's it going? It's going great, Joey. Thanks for uh, having me on for the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, and so last week we talked about the history. 1931 gaming got started. We got 1959 was when the Gaming Control Board was figured out. 67 was the legislature approved. The, the corporate ownership of casinos. We also talked about the, the mob in Vegas and, and then the changing of hands and the, the, the peak of Las Vegas, the peak of gaming in Nevada. Again, as someone from Reno, I, I do like to mention too that the Harrah's in Reno was a very important, a very important element in that. But now we're kind of in, 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 in that mid, midsection before we get to the modern era of gaming today. So one big thing that Nevada has had to face is that Nevada is not the only state where gambling is legal anymore. It's kind of known as that, which I think is really interesting. A lot of times, like, it's what people think of when they think of gambling. They think of Nevada. But gaming is legal in a lot of states now. Why is that? How did that transition happen? When did that happen? And how has Nevada dealt with that? When I started covering gaming back in the 80s, it was Nevada and New Jersey. And the only place in New Jersey was Atlantic City. And then you have to remember, when Atlantic City was legalized in 1979, 1980, they said it's going to be the death of Nevada, death of Las Vegas. No, it wasn't. It, it turned out not to be. And so they, so they moved along the two, two markets where the two epicenters of gambling, legal gambling in the U.S., Nevada, Las Vegas, and Reno, and Atlantic City. I used to joke that so gentleman, Dan Hennigan, who just retired as the head of communications for the New Jersey Casino Control Commission, he was the gaming reporter for the press at Atlantic City back in the late 80s, and I was the gaming reporter for the Review Journal. We were the only two gaming reporters in the U.S., we used to say. <laughs> that was it. We were, we were the two experts back then because nobody, nobody, no other state had, no other media state had gaming. But what happened was in 1989, South Dakota decided to legalize gambling, small stakes gaming, in a small town called Deadwood, South Dakota. And the reason for that is Deadwood was an old west town. And it's famous for its saloons, the Old West, Dakota Territories gambling. And Wild Bill Hickok was playing poker in one of those saloons. And he got into an argument and he was shot to death by another player. But Wild Bill Hickok was holding a hand called, it's now called the Dead Man's Hand, Aces and Eights. So if you're playing poker and you hear you have the Dead Man's Hand, that's, what, that's where that term came from. But Deadwood, South Dakota decided they wanted to try to revive tourism. So they legalized small stakes gaming in the little saloons and casinos and in, in the historic district of Deadwood. And that became a um, trivia question because a few years later, Iowa and the Isle Capri was the company wanted to bring a riverboat casino to Iowa, legalized casinos, legalized riverboat gaming. The catch was the boats had to be on water. They had moved up and down the rivers in Iowa when people can gamble on them. Years later, when other states legalized riverboat gaming, they clarified it to say that the gambling had to take place over water. So you had 
casinos built on pylons over the river or whatever, or the lake or wherever it was, they, they never moved. They never, they never floated down the river or floated in the lake. They were just built over water. But Iowa was right out, was the first state to really legalize casinos. And then it started, it just started to flood. Mississippi was pretty close to Iowa in legalizing it. Mississippi copied Nevada's regulatory structure almost to the T, um, same type of system. But there was the concern, obviously, that, okay, now all these states are legalizing gaming. Is this going to hurt Las Vegas? Well, it didn't because the operators in Las Vegas, they're the ones that went into these different states and opened these casinos. I, I remember going out to cover the opening of a, in Harris, Harris Joliet in Illinois, when they launched their first riverboat casino out there. Well, as you walk in to the casino, to the casino boat, there were signs up of showing all the photos of all of Harris properties in Nevada. So it was a marketing tool. Get people to learn, you know, you know, it's fun to go to a casino, you know, that's an form of entertainment, but get them to come out to the mecca of gaming either in Las Vegas or Reno. That's what the way Harris looked at it. That's the way a lot of these companies ended up doing, getting involved in Atlantic City. So, I mean, you had Hilton Hotels went back to Atlantic City. Hilton owned the Las Vegas Hilton here. They went back, couldn't get licensed for some reason, but they ended up selling to, to Steve Wynn, who built Golden Nugget Atlantic City. So you, you had these casinos, these companies now, went into all these different regional markets. They're now they're now Boyd Gaming, for example, started out in Nevada. They have, you know, their Nevada history historic Nevada company. They have ten they have ten casinos in Nevada, but they have another seventeen casinos in nine other states all around the US. So this is this is where this is how this has really changed, whereas the Nevada companies become like the the resource to go into these other states and go out there and and build casinos, operate casinos in other states. And it gets back to a point that you asked why back in our first episode, tax dollars. This is the reason the states went ahead and expanded gambling was uh, the tax money that went along with it. It becomes a huge argument. Nevada's tax rate is 6.75% for the casino industry. Every Every state has a different tax rate. And you have people that complain because the companies go into other states. Well, Nevada is a different is a different market. Joey, you and I could have the money to build a casino. We have the land. We have the wherewithal to do it. As long as we get the license, we're able to do it. Certain states only have a limited number of licenses. Pennsylvania was just 15 licenses. Maryland is just six licenses. That's why the tax rates are so much higher in other states because they are they are limited by the number of licenses, whereas Nevada, it's wide open. I think there's like, I think I last check on the gaming control board, it was like 271 casinos in Nevada, whereas Pennsylvania is just 15 casinos. And they're only in certain areas, too. They regulated that you can only have a certain number of casinos in certain counties or certain cities, whereas Nevada, it's wide open. So that's the difference. And that's why when, when you can't compare Nevada to another state. It really is an apples to oranges comparison. Two very different, even though their their regulatory structures might be the same, they have the same games, they have the same slot machines, now they all have sports betting. You can't compare them. It's really because of the tax rate and how they are how they are the number of properties that licenses that are allowed in each state. Well, shifting away from the regulation and the taxing and talking more about, we, we saw the shift away from gaming a bit, not as heavy of a reliance on it, and more towards the hospitality industry and the shows, the arts industry, right? I know, I mean, I moved to Reno in 2000, 
And I just remember I've always heard like, oh, no Reno is moving away from gambling and towards outdoor recreation. And well, Reno is going towards that, lots of skiing, lots of swimming, lots of outdoor activities. Las Vegas has maintained that hospitality industry that it has always had, but it's less focused on gambling and it's more focused now. And definitely gambling is still a big part of it. But now you've got all of these shows, you have all of these just immaculate hotels. People aren't going to Las Vegas just to gamble anymore. They're going to Las Vegas for this experience. When did that shift happen and why? The mid-90s has started shifting. I think that's really where it started taking place, especially it, the change was we always had conventions. We had we have Las Vegas has always had the big convention center. The convention center expanded. But then when Sheldon Adelson bought the Sands, one of the first things he did was build the Sands Expo. So you built another two million square feet of convention space. You've seen other hotels on the Strip add large convention space. MGM, when they built the MGM Grand, actually added the MGM Grand Garden, the first kind of an arena attached to a hotel, but it was used as convention space too, along, along with their other convention facilities. So conventions and meetings became a big part of the Las Vegas business makeup. It filled a lot of the rooms midweek. So you brought people in midweek because the weekends, you're always going to get people to Vegas in, in the weekends, okay? But in the midweek, I needed to fill the rooms. That's where the convention and meeting business came in. But then at the same time, they they built these retail malls. I mean, Caesar's Caesars Entertainment, in about 1990, announced they were going to take this land on the Strip and create the Caesars Forum shops, a big retail shopping mall. At the time cost about $100 million. People went nuts. The analyst community went nuts, saying, you're going to spend that much money on something and not have a slot machine in it? Well, Caesars Forum shops, after it opened for a time, it was the number one most profitable shopping mall in the world because of where it was attached, right, onto Caesar's Palace on the Strip. And now now you look up and down the Strip, everybody's got shopping malls, <laughs> you know, in some shape or form. The high-end restaurants, we saw the, the celebrity chefs all started, became a thing and all started coming to Vegas. So that's really where the transition started in the 90s and just kind of evolved, kept on evolving through. Along with this growth of gambling around the U.S., these regional markets, you had to give people a reason to come here not just to gamble, because you can go gamble, you can go down the street in some of your regional markets. And many of these regional markets are much like our neighborhood hotel casinos that we see in Vegas and, and, and in, in our communities, the Red Rock Resorts and the Sun Coast and all that. That type, adding all that into the, into the mix, that's what's really changed the business dynamic for, for the Strip and for, and for the gaming industry, because you see this now in other markets. This is why Atlantic City is, has, has fallen so far behind other markets and it's not just the fact that they got casinos in philadelphia or in neighboring states around new jersey it's the fact that the Atlantic city casinos didn't keep up like las vegas did so that's that's really where the the, the change has been so the last thing that i want to touch on for this part is the rise of the casino billionaire right you see sheldon adelson uh, steve Wynn. you have these uber rich people that are coming in and they've got these hotels and they're owning these companies we've got corporate casinos now and then we have these these billionaires come in and really that has been the era until very very recently in which case we've seen another shift i would say in the last you know couple years but we'll get to that in the next episode what was this rise kind of of the casino billionaire Sheldon Adelson became a billionaire because of Comdex, the, the big consumer trade, consumer electronics computer trade show that he created and then sold. That's what helped him buy the Sands Hotel. And he came in because Sheldon Adelson was angry at, at, at the Las Vegas Convention of Visitors Authority. And 
Sheldon Adelson would, for his Comdex show, would rent the Las Vegas Convention Center and lease and then lease it out to his Comdex attendees. Well, this convention center would sell him the space for five cents a square foot. Sheldon would turn around and lease that same space out for $25 a square foot. So nice markup there, huh? So that's, that he became a billionaire in that sense. But what happened was the hotel people used to complain because Comdex people would come in, and, but they wouldn't gamble. They just like, they go in, they go to, they go eat at McDonald's and, and go to the show and they wouldn't, they wouldn't gamble. They wouldn't stay in their rooms and care. So they jack up the room rates when Comdex would come in. So that's part of the reason why Sheldon Allison bought the Sands and built the Venetian when he took the Venetian public, Sands Corporation public in, in, in the early 2000s. That's when he became an uber billionaire because of the valuation that went. Steve Wynn became a billionaire through the, through the casino industry, building the own gold nugget downtown and built the Mirage and then Bellagio, Treasure Island, Bellagio. And when he finally sold it, yeah, he became a billionaire through that. But you had, it was really the corporate, it's, it's the, the, Corporate Wall Street-owned casino companies that really changed the dynamics of the casino industry because they not only did they want to be in Vegas, but they wanted to be in the other markets that were going on that were hot. It's the corporations that really changed the dynamic structure of the casino industry. The billionaire CEOs or or corporate executives with within the companies. All right, cool. Well, Howard, I think we will end it there for the second part of our three-part series talking about the history of gaming. Next week, we'll talk about the modern history, the shift, and I'm looking forward, especially now that the pandemic has happened, and also the shift um, since the death of Sheldon Adelson and the ousting of, of Steve Wynn. So we will we'll get to that next week, but thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andre. I appreciate it. Samantha Glover is a 16-year-old high school student who attends the Davidson Academy in Reno, Nevada. She was also down in Carson City in May and presented virtually before that to help pass AB 224, which would help provide menstruation products in school bathrooms free of charge in an effort to combat what is known as period poverty. Samantha also co-founded a nonprofit called Red Equity, which helps provide menstruation products and destigmatize talk about menstruation and period poverty. I'm joined today by Samantha as well as reporter Tabitha Mueller. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And so I, I guess I just want to start with what, what is period poverty? What, what, is, what, it, what does that mean? So it's the inability to access menstrual products, menstrual hygiene facilities, or menstrual education. Like the one question that I had is like, when did you start thinking about period poverty? Like what got you started? Because I, I don't know many teenagers that might be thinking, huh, like where do I get my menstruation products and where do other? And then what drove you to kind of champion this issue? Yeah, so this started from uh, an assignment in English class, actually. Um, we were assigned an argumentative essay and we could write about any topic of our choice. So while I was doing research, just about this, I happened to stumble upon a story about period poverty, and I was so shocked because as someone who didn't have to worry about where my next tampon was coming from, it never occurred to me that other people were struggling to attend school or really just go about their daily life because they can't afford menstrual products. So I was like, wow, who, there's got to be someone doing something about this in Reno. Like, is there like legislation that people are working on or something to combat this? And while I looked into other states and what they were doing to mitigate period poverty in schools, I found out that Virginia, New York, and 
loads of other states, really just only six though. But at the time it seemed like, wow, these people are, are doing something and taking legislative action. So I looked into Nevada and I realized that the last legislation proposed or passed was eliminating the tampon tax a few years ago. So as a high school student in Nevada, I realized that it's quite inaccessible in schools to get period products if you need them. You have to ask your teacher to leave class and then go to the nurse's office. And oftentimes they're like, well, why are you going to the nurse's office, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be a very lengthy process, at least in my own experience, to, to obtain a menstrual product inside school. So I decided to start calling some legislators and lobbyists, just anybody's contact information I found on the Internet from previous sessions and emailing, calling and asking somebody to bring forward legislation in the upcoming session to ensure schools provide menstrual products inside school bathrooms because almost everybody I talk to about this like topic of menstrual equity and period poverty, they're like, oh, this seems like a no-brainer. Why They're just as important as toilet paper, hand soap. They should be provided in the same way in school bathrooms. So eventually I got connected with Assemblywoman Duran who brought forward this bill and here we are now, right? So that's kind of like where this all bill all started. And then when you started calling, had mm-hmm. you looked at other states with similar legislation? What did that legislation look like and how did it kind of inform mm-hmm. the, con- the conversations you had with lobbyists and lawmakers? So I was a little bit unaware of the legislative process in Nevada, which is something I've now learned I think everybody should be taught in school about how the legislature works within our own state in Nevada. So I wrote a bill, or how ideally I would like to have this bill introduced based off of a bill in Virginia that recently passed. So the idea was to require all schools to provide menstrual products at no cost in Nevada. And so that was just kind of the precedent. And there was there's really a lot of positive support from where it has been implemented. New York City's pilot program saw attendance increased by 2.4% after they implemented free menstrual products inside school bathrooms. So it was the the scale of the problem as well as the potential positive impacts that I think um, really led legislators to support this piece of legislation overwhelmingly because one in three women since the beginning of the pandemic started have struggled to afford menstrual products. And and it was passed unanimously, right? Through both houses? Yes, through both houses and both committees. What was what was that feeling like for you? It was obviously overly like overwhelming. I was so excited. I still get so excited talking about it because it's very kind of reassuring to see that other people care about something you're so passionate just as much as you do. I was also feeling very inspired and empowered that a piece of legislation that was really just like a dream or idea quite literally a few months ago or a few weeks ago, passed out of a real committee in like the real legislature. So that was so, so exciting. I think it's so cool. I think the legislature to a lot of people seems like this really inaccessible mm-hmm. monument of, of, of government. And, and so for you to be able to get in there and to get a bill passed, to talk with a legislator and, and, and work with them, do you feel like it's still super inaccessible? Or what are the barriers to getting people to like participate in politics? So I do think that the legislature being virtual made it much more accessible for me along with other students who were testifying in support of this bill. And I thought what was kind of the most monumental feeling I felt was 
how big of a difference young people can really make in legislation because we had over 700 students in Nevada sign on, both teachers, parents sign a petition in support of this bill, along with like 23 students called in and testified during the committee hearings. And to see that our work and oftentimes a lot of these were students who had never testified before and to see them do like write such motivating and persuasive testimony and see the impact that it had on legislators to really change their mind about legislation is beyond inspiring. And I think I hope that this kind of experience is inspirational to other people, particularly young people who may seem see politics or advocacy as out of reach or for people who have a lot of experience because legislators listen. And that's what I found out. Like they do work for us at the end of the day. We are their constituents regardless of age. One thing I was wondering about Mm -hmm. is you got this piece of legislation through. Do you think it's enough? I think this is really the first step in combating period poverty. And we just in Nevada, along with eliminating the tampon tax, still have a lot of work to go because when we look at places of incarceration or just people who are not of school age who can't access menstrual products, this is not a solution to period poverty in Nevada, but rather the first step in finding a more comprehensive solution. I think every bill represents kind of something, you know, someone's idea of a problem, and whether it's bigger or smaller. Mm-hmm. But do you have ideas for future bills that you want to present? Yes. And I think when we look forwards towards inspiration, that means at least the next step, encouraging college campuses to provide menstrual products. And then moving from there, we can look towards federal legislation, like Congresswoman Meng's Menstrual Equity for All Act that was just reintroduced. And making sure, I guess, that menstrual equity is accessible to everybody and every single menstruator. There, there is a lot of cynicism in politics. I mean, people say like no, nothing ever gets done or, or mm-hmm. policy is only you know presented or, or pushed through by special interest groups and politicians only do things to help their campaign and they don't really care about like the actual thing. Do you, do you share that cynicism or do you feel like coming out of this, there is kind of this like genuine like hope to better society? Mm-hmm. So I can only speak to my experience, but I was came out of this legislature and from the bill signing ceremony with just this rejuvenated sense of hope, but also, I guess, feeling more empowered and inspired than ever. Because, I mean, I'm at the end of the day, I'm still a teenager who just had an idea. And for this to turn into a law, I think signifies possibility, I guess. People were like, oh, are you sure you've thought this through or no? how to implement this. And I think a very good response to this is this legislation affects high school students and middle school students. And I don't think any legislator who is not a high school student will be more familiar with the experience of high school students today and how they experience period poverty than a high school student themselves. So of course, I don't have the legislative experience, but I have the experience of being a young person around those who've experienced period poverty. Well, Samantha, I feel like we're going to be hearing a lot more from you in the future, hopefully. Uh, Keep up the good work and and thanks so much for talking with us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Samantha founded Red Equity, a nonprofit organization that hosts period product drives and assembles period packages for women struggling to attain products during their menstrual cycle. In Reno, they partner with the Reno Burrito Project. If you want to find out more about the organization, you can visit their website, redequity.com, or follow them on Instagram at redequity.
All right. And so we are here with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, to talk about what is going on in the nation's capital. Humberto, how is it going? It's going well. Good. It's been it's been about a month, I think, since you've been on the podcast. So I'm curious to hear if uh, D.C. has gotten muggier or if it's... We've gone through the entire cycle. It was super muggy until the sky exploded and cooled everything down. And so now <laughs> we're in this kind of... We're going through the cycle again and it's going to get muggy, but it's quite nice now. It's like unhumid, like 80 degrees. Oh, nice. It sounds like... In Reno, we're, we're just like 100 degrees every... Like it's 98 every day. <laughs> and there's not a cloud in the sky, although unfortunately... Sounds like fires are starting early this summer, so we'll see. But, uh, you know, what's going on in D.C.? Let's start with the infrastructure bill. I think that's something that's been in the national news a lot. What's going on with the infrastructure bill? Last time we talked, it was this $2.1 trillion behemoth. It seems like it's kind of changed course a little bit since then. So, yeah, now we we have President Joe Biden faces a, a bit of a dilemma. There, there's two, essentially two strategies he can pursue, and we don't know which one he, they're going to go down. One is to do two bills for for infrastructure. One, one bill would be a bipartisan bill with, with Republican support and Democratic support that would include things like roads, bridges, and broadband, and, and, some, and what you'd call hard infrastructure, traditional infrastructure. And then do a second bill, which would have these Democratic priorities like daycare, student loans, and stuff like that in it, what, what the president calls the care economy, which he believes is, is infrastructure as well, and that Republicans would likely never support. And so right now you have a couple of different groups of senators working on a hard infrastructure package. They still have to get approval from the White House. But if the White House chooses to go that path, the Senate would pass that one bill and then the House would try to pass pass that bill. The problem is progressives in the House and, and in the Senate are very wary of doing this two step, this two bill process because moderate Democrats, there's no guarantee they'll they'll vote for that second bill, which and they'd need their votes if they're doing it on only Democratic votes. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be just to put everything in one into one gigantic bill. And there has been talk of a some kind of six trillion dollar proposal in that regard. But to do that, you'd still need all of your Democratic senators to vote your your Joe Manchins of, of West Virginia of the world and Chris Kirsten Cinemas of Arizona. And but they're busy working on this bipartisan bill, so they are not there. There's no incentive for them to go along and do that. So the president is going to have to decide how they're going to do it. And everybody wants to do something and, and not leave anything on the table. So it's a real conundrum, and it's going to be very fascinating to see how this plays out because uh, those those moderate Democrats carry they have a lot of power right now because of of the 50 50 split in this in the Senate. And either way, you need their votes, so you have to keep them happy. And uh, it's going to be tough to square that circle. And so, I mean, that's one one big thing that's uh, that's happening. But one thing that actually happened that got passed is that Juneteenth is now a federal holiday. It's the first federal holiday since uh, Martin Luther King Day in 1983. How did, how did that go? What was the what was kind of the perception and, and vote there? It was a overwhelming vote. All, all of the members of our delegation voted. It passed four, 415 to 14. And all okay. the all the no's were Republicans. But uh, Mark Amaday voted for it. 195 Republicans voted for it of the 415 yes votes. So it was it was overwhelming. And I think that there's just a lot of support for for celebrating that day. And I believe I think you mentioned that it was the first federal holiday since 1983. Yeah, I I was going to ask, too, how much does it cost to have a new federal holiday? I don't know the answer to that, but there is a cost associated with it because the federal government pays 
people to not work <laughs> for these federal holidays. And that's one of the big issues with adding new federal holidays is that they do cost money. Everybody still gets paid, but the work isn't get doesn't get done that day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's one of the issues that, that conservative Republicans raised who who opposed it. But obviously the the symbolism of, pa- of making that a federal holiday carried the day. Yeah. So moving kind of from federal focused things to, to state focused things, at least Nevada focused in the federal lens, this lands bill, we've got this lands bill, Catherine Cortez Masto's um, a big part of that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, she's a, got a, a new subcommittee. Part, she's chair of the subcommittee, Energy and Natural Resources. Her first hearing was on a series of bills, one of which was her Clark County lands bill and also her Rue Mountains Protection Act bill, which would prohibit any oil and gas speculation on the Rue Mountains. And so they had a hearing that had people from the Bureau of, of Land Management come in, BLM, and they basically supported the goals of the bill. There were a few issues they needed to iron out, but it didn't seem like anything that was insurmountable. They, they both committed to, to working on the bills. And Marcy Henson, who's the director of the Clark County Department of Environment, and sustainability. She testified and basically said that Clark County is expected to gain another 820,000 residents by 2060. And this bill is essential to essentially planning for that growth. Because as you know, look, Clark County is about 5.2 million acres, but 89% of that is administered by some federal agency or the Department of Defense. And so the majority of land also about 2.6 million acres is administrated by BLM itself. And she said that basically that's the, the, due to the federal land ownership in Southern Nevada options for planning and development are, are constrained and require significant coordination with federal land management agencies. So the bill would open up a stretch of land, of federal public land, running south along I-15 toward the town of Gene to, in, the, in the direction of the California border. And it, it opened that up for a commercial and residential development. It also opens up public land near Indian Springs and Laughlin and Mayopa Valley. At the same time, legislation to proposes conserving about 2 million acres of public land, and it would establish a wilderness area of a significant significant chunk of land. And it would also protect about 1.3 million acres of the Desert National Wildlife Refuge Mm -hmm. as wilderness as well. So it's it's a really important bill. And we will we'll see the next step is to basically to get it through the, that committee and we'll see when that happens. And uh, I, I assume that they're looking to, for, to the fall or getting that to the full Senate. As we move towards the end of the year, it's going to be harder and harder to get stuff through because there's not a lot of floor time. There's going to be so much ha- action happening just in, in trying to get the annual appropriations done. But all signs point to this this getting through the Senate, but we'll see what how, how she gets that done. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk about is Jackie Rosen had this this outdoor tourism hearing. Tell me a little bit more about, about that. Sure. She she is now head of a subcommittee on tourism. And this is, I think, her third hearing. And she it was on outdoor tourism. And basically, she had Colin Robertson, who's head of the Division of Outdoor Recreation for the state. He testified and basically said that the land management agencies need more annual appropriations and there needs to be more investment in rural communities to help better manage the stresses that the pandemic put on the natural resources in the state, which actually drove more campers to remote areas. But at the same time, there was a lot of job loss in outdoor recreation. So that additional funding to places like BLM and the Forest Service would help with that land management and, and how the the increase in use of outdoor resources has put stress on the on the natural resources of the state. All right. Well, cool. Alhambra, thank you so much for, for kind of giving us an overview of everything that's going on. I'm sure we'll have some interesting stuff coming up as we move as we move towards the end of summer and then into the fall and spring. The midterms are coming up, obviously, so so it'll be an interesting shift. We're already seeing it happen, but yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Howard Stutz, Samantha Glover, Tabitha Mueller, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our monthly multimedia newsletter, Soundcheck, which comes out on the first Friday of every month. And email us with questions, comments, concerns, favorite curtain patterns, humidifier recommendations, or whatever else you want to tell us at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com. Reno Band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. I really enjoyed the Department of Defense. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, you corrected yourself. But at first you said Department, and I, I, I thought it was very funny. <laughs> 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 the DOD agency or the Department of Defense.